we are in a series called Tales of the Kingdom. And we're going to spend the rest of the summer, right through the end of August, looking at uh, some of the stories Jesus told in the Gospel of Mark to uh, describe what life is in the kingdom of God is like, what's actually going on in that space, and how do we get involved, or what should we kind of be thinking and doing, and all that sort of stuff. And if you missed last Sunday, Mark Wilkinson did an amazing job. Um, that's, that's on the website. You can go and catch up there. I'd really encourage you to do that. I wonder how you respond when someone challenges what you think or believe. You ever have, by the way, this is called party people back here on purpose, so uh, we uh, feel no apology needed for uh, some noise coming back there. We love that our kids get to have an absolute blast when they're here, so if you hear some noise back there, don't worry, they're having an amazing time. Uh, They're screams of fun, not terror. Uh, (laughs) Promise. Um, But how do you respond when someone challenges what you think or believe? You ever had a dinner party where um, people kind of assume everyone believes the same thing? This happens to me a lot uh, in the work that I do. People just assume they know what I think and believe about everything. They think I'm pretty conservative and all my uh, thoughts are leaning right. And uh, so that's right. But anyway, you're right. Whatever. Um, it's always kind of funny whenever they trip over things. That, and I'm like, actually, I don't, I, don't, I don't actually think that. But it's even more awkward when you ever have a moment where somebody says something and you believe the opposite And you have this moment where you're like, do I challenge and create a slightly awkward moment for everybody? Or do do I just say nothing and yeah, whatever, you know, move on and then have that conversation on the way home? Can you believe they think that? Like, (laughs) I I love these these moments, particularly with people who don't like um, creating any sort of disharmony in groups where they end up uh, unknowingly agreeing with everything. And uh, I am very close to somebody that's like that. And... Um, we process it in cars. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but we live together. And, uh, <laughs> and they're not a child. <laughs> it's really interesting if, when you look at the Gospels how Jesus um, confronts people when he thinks or believes something really different. Usually, he doesn't just say, no, I don't think that, I think this, like most of us do, Right? Like, if we, if we are going to go there in the awkward moment of, like, correcting what somebody actually thinks we think, or you actually even going further than that and correcting what you think they should think, usually we just go, that's rubbish, you should think this. Or, no, that's not true, I think this. Jesus does this really weird thing. Usually, whenever he's presented something about him or a question that's really, really hard, rather than just going, well, this is what you should think, or, well, this is what I think, usually he goes, well, there was this guy once. And he did this thing. And you have this moment, if you read the Gospels, and you're anything like me, you spend an awful lot of the time going, what does this story have to do with this question? Or what does this story have to do with this statement? Usually Jesus reframes or or frames what's going on all the time in these things called parables. Stories that illustrate something deeper. And the really annoying thing about parables is usually they're not overly obvious. I find this deeply challenging as a church leader. And it's much easier for me to just stand up here and tell you guys what I think you should think or what I think the Bible thinks. But I'm really provoked in that Jesus does a very different thing. He tells stories that need to be wrestled with and grappled with and that provoke us and challenge us. They're surprising. They're like, whoa, what? what has that got to do with this? 
And I'm a why person, right? I talked to my parents. It was kind of the bane of their existence when I was a child. And I've never grown out of it. Like, number one question I kind of live with about everything is why. And I think one of the reasons God does this is there's this really cool proverb that says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to seek it out. That there's something happens whenever we wrestle with God on something. And we think about what he's saying and we think about our lives and we think about what's going on that, that actually causes us to grow into a fuller understanding of the kingdom rather than it just being like a spoon-fed, believe this, don't believe that, do this, don't do that. And I think the challenge for all of us is that we don't allow ourselves to live at what can be, if we're honest, an easier level of everything is so, so simple and everything lines up and everything is completely black and white where Jesus actually invites us to wrestle with him about what's going on in the world and what's going on in his kingdom. And that's really what the parables are all about. They're stories that invite those listening to think and wrestle. And usually what we find as we wrestle with these, at least in the context of the Gospels, what people find is surprising truths that in the most beautifully subversive way confront the prevailing beliefs and ideologies of the day that are actually contrary to who God is and how he thinks and behaves. Let me say that again because I know that's a bit of a mouthful. Parables are stories that invite those listening to think and wrestle with them in order that they would find surprising truths that in the most beautifully subversive way confront the prevailing beliefs and ideologies of the day. That's what Jesus is doing in the parables. And so this morning I want us to look at a text from Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. We're going to read verse 20 to 30. If you go there in your black Bibles, it's page 697. Page 697. I'll give you a second to go there. Six ninety-seven, Mark chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 20. It says this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, for they are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are so, so grateful for your word. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and reveal the truth of Jesus to us in it. 
Give us ears and hearts and minds to hear what you're saying. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I wonder how many of you enjoy telling stories. Just wave at me if you like telling stories. I don't mean lies, by the way. Isn't that, isn't that funny? I love that here. You know, he's a bit of a storyteller, that boy. <laughs> I'm not talking about lies. Just normal stories. Many of you like telling stories. I, I love telling stories. We were just in uh, Kansas a few weeks ago. I was preaching at a big church, and um, I told them about that really important Irish proverb. It's especially important for preachers that says, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. That's a joke. Um, when I was a child, my dad used to tell us made-up stories, and there were familiar characters in them, and um, we used to just love them. Like, and they, there was this, uh, there was one uh, character that was kind of the central guy in all these stories called Wee Willie Smith, and uh, I, I was convinced actually that Wee Willie Smith was a real person until I was about 16 years old, and uh, we were having a conversation. I was like, Dad, like, who is that? Who was Wee Willie Smith? He's like totally made-up guy. Uh, but it's interesting, I have continued that tradition with our kids. I tell them made-up stories, and they each have like their own name that places them in the stories. And uh, we have all sorts of books and like illustrated Bible stuff and all that sort of stuff. But before bed, their favorite thing in the world uh, for me to do when I ask them, do you want a story or do you want a book or whatever, is for me to tell them uh, one of these made-up stories. I'm, I'm quite convinced that my love of the outdoors and uh, adventure and all that kind of stuff is actually rooted in my childhood where falling asleep every night, my dad used to tell stories of these mad like dragons and caves and mountains and rivers and all that um, kind of stuff. But I hope you understand, whether you like telling stories or not, we all tell stories all the time. At least to ourselves anyway. Like, everywhere you go, you are telling yourself a story about what's going on around you. Last Tuesday night, when the final whistle went an extra time in England's last 16 game, there were English fans all over the world who have been living in a certain story. And so when it went to penalties, there, were, there was hope that they might win, but most people went, I know how the story ends, right? I, I, I know, we lose penalty shootouts, that's what they would be thinking, right? England, up until last Tuesday night, have never won a penalty shootout in a major tournament. And so when it goes there, everybody has that kind of like, Desperate hope, but the reality is the story that they tell themselves is we never win penalty shootouts. What I love about that moment is that story is forever changed. In a moment, decades of a story changes. And no English fan ever again can say we never win penalty shootouts. The stories we tell ourselves are so, so powerful. And we carry them into every interaction, into all of our planning, into how we think about the future, how we think about our families, how we approach decisions, and all that kind of stuff. Whether you're aware of it or not, you're telling yourself a story. Let me illustrate for you. Some of you have been um, painfully betrayed by people that you love. And often when, when that happens, the story that we tell ourselves is people can't be trusted. Because that's our experience, right? Now, the reality is that the world has got some people in it that you really shouldn't trust. That makes sense, right? But equally, there are lots of people, I could introduce you to them, 
There's loads of them, even in this community, believe it or not. There are lots of people in the world who you could trust with your life. That's, that's the truth. But if we tell ourselves and live in a story that people cannot be trusted, then that kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And everywhere we go, we look for confirmation of the story that we're already telling ourselves. And this is totally natural. Forgive me, we're going to go on a bunny trail into some psychology for a second. But the reality is, at any given moment in your life, there are, I can't remember the number, but there is literally millions of individual little pieces of information that's coming into your brain and your senses through everything. Sight, sound, smell, taste. It's like, it'd be amazing to see a picture of what's actually going on in your brain, even in a moment like this where you're pretty passive and just sitting listening to me. There is information bombarding you about what's on this stage, what's happening with this light over here, this picture up here and who this guy is and is he wearing sunglasses or is he not wearing sunglasses? You know, there's like... Literally, all of that is like happening in your brain. And in order for you to function, uh, you, you, your brain has to do three things with all the information that you're getting. It has to delete, distort, and generalize that information. That's what happens. So in order for you to function and actually focus in a conversation, and some of you are better at this than others, you have to delete, distort, and generalize what's actually happening in your brain and all of the information that you're getting. Why, why does that matter? Well, because your brain will delete, distort, and generalize according to the story that you're telling yourself. So if you think everybody is like to be not trusted and everybody's a little bit shitty and everybody is like looking to kind of take advantage of, of other people, then what happens is you delete and you distort and you generalize the kindness of others and you focus on the kind of weird guy in the corner who looks a little bit shady and you're like, I'm not sure really what that guy's doing over there. What has any of this got to do with Jesus? This is exactly what's going on in this passage. These teachers of the law are living in a story of what they think God is like and how they think he behaves. And surprise, surprise, they think God behaves like them. So along comes Jesus, and he's doing all kinds of things that they would never do. And so rather than going, that's interesting, we should ask some, some questions, they start to do all sorts of like theological gymnastics with accusations and all kinds of things in order to make this thing they're seeing fit into the story that they are telling themselves about who God is and how he behaves. And the dangerous thing about not being totally aware of the story that we tell ourselves is that if we're not careful, it can lead us to think and say things that really don't make sense. You ever hear that lovely expression, uh, don't confuse me with the facts my mind's already made up? It kind of sums up a lot of what goes on in Northern Ireland, eh? Where there's there's a story that we're telling ourselves And in order for that story to be true, we have to twist and distort and change what's going on in order for it to fit into the narrative that we've decided is true. And our community is rife with this. We've been ravaged by this. 
where we twist and distort what we see going on in one part of our community or the other part of our community to fit the narrative that we want to believe. And somewhere in the midst of it all is actually what's going on and what is true. As I listened to the debate about the recent referendum on abortion in the South, I couldn't help but see this all over it. And truth be told, sometimes on, on both sides. But I, I find it fascinating that in the name of freedom and rights, we remove the freedom and right to life. Like that, that doesn't seem to, those two things don't seem to add up to me. They don't seem incompatible. And I have all sorts of convictions from the Bible about abortion that we don't want to get into. But just from a purely logical standpoint, like just based purely on logic, these things don't seem overly compatible, but you see, whenever you're so convinced of a certain story, you have to make all kinds of weird leaps and jumps in order to make things fit into that story. Verse 22 says, The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. It's a bit of a stupid statement. And Jesus goes on to expose how silly it is. But before that, he's been causing quite a ruckus. In the first two chapters of Mark, he's healed so many people that Mark literally records it as whole towns gathering around Jesus and him healing many. We don't even get the specifics. It's just loads, right? He's pronouncing forgiveness over people and getting into all sorts of arguments with religious leaders. He's going to parties with the wrong kinds of people. He he even performed miracle on a Sunday. And we know that you're not even allowed to like watch TV or play football on Sunday, right? He's breaking the rules. He's not behaving how a holy person should behave. And rumors are spreading that he thinks he is acting on behalf of God. And the really important leaders from Jerusalem have had enough and they've come to confront him. You see, Jesus doesn't fit into the story that they're telling themselves about how God acts. I find this really, really interesting when it comes to like supernatural phenomenon, particularly healing. And I've watched over the years as certain people have literally experienced unexplainable, supernatural, physical healing and tried to justify it in some sort of other way other than a miracle. Well, like, you know, there's like psychology that we don't understand. Maybe something metaphysical was going on that's like beyond what we kind of grasp at the minute. And like that happened and this other thing happened. And, you know, it's, it's probably not a God thing. It's just like these things can happen. And usually my response is that could totally be true, but it requires way more faith than to think it was just God. Now, in this context, the supernatural had two sources. So they hadn't quite got to our um, depth of confusion. It was quite simple. If something supernatural happened on earth, it had one of two sources. It was God or the devil. There was no debate around physics or metaphysics or psychology or all that sort of stuff. It was just God or the devil, right? That's how they understood the supernatural. 
And so in this context, Jesus is involved in all sorts of crazy, miraculous stuff. He's healing people. He's driving out demons from people. He's setting people free. There's all sorts of crazy things going on. And the religious leaders are attempting to label Jesus in such a way that will so ruin his reputation, people will be afraid from associating with him. They're seeking to do whatever they can to stop people from taking him seriously. And in typical Jesus fashion, rather than like confronting their labels with labels, rather than meeting them in the same critical and aggressive and angry spirit, it says in verse 23 that he calls them over to him and began, began to speak to them in parables. So they come at Jesus with all of these accusations and all of this criticism. Just practice this this week and see the kind of response that you get, right? Somebody criticizes you, just go, well, you know, there was a guy once. And so people think you've totally lost it, right? Jesus is confronted with accusations and challenge, and he responds by telling stories. Listen to this quote from the Australian philosopher Ivan Illich. He says, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story, one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into our future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. This, wow, that would have been bad. This philosopher is quoted by scholars and cultural commentators and really smart people all over the world. The reality is Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. At the core of this revolution that he began was this articulation of a new story, a different story. And even if you haven't been to church much or around church much, you'll know some of these stories that are as alive today as they were the day and hour they came out of his mouth. Think about the prodigal son for a second. It completely reframed the entire world's understanding of the character and nature of God. He told a different story. He told a better story. I was with a friend recently and I was just talking about life and everything that's kind of going on, and I can't remember, I wish I could, I must text and find out, I can't remember the um, scholar he was talking about, but there's a, quite a well-known Christian scholar commentating on life in Western culture who said there's a day coming when the thing that will really stand out about Christians and the church is they don't kill their old people and they don't kill their babies. We need to learn how to tell different story. It's not in the confrontation of beliefs and ideology. It's not in arguments over doctrine or social issues. It's being skilled in the way of Jesus to learn how to articulate the story of God and invite the world into the discovery of the hope and wholeness that is found in the midst of that. I wonder, is there a different story God wants to invite you into this morning?
Jesus goes on to say, how can Satan drive out Satan? He exposes the blind spot of what he's being accused of. It's nonsense what they're saying. But you ever have moments where, like, it's not until someone exposes nonsense that you notice it? This happens to me, unfortunately, quite often in the radio or when I'm listening to debates. And someone is putting forth a really articulate and eloquent case for something, and I'm sitting there going, yeah, that makes sense. That, yeah, that, that, seems to be, that seems to be good. And then the other person will go, yeah, but what about this, this, and this? And you're like, oh, flip, hey, that's nonsense. <laughs> right? Like, Jesus, these guys have, have presented this, like, it's by Satan, he's driving out Satan. And you can imagine everyone around going, oh, my goodness, flip, I didn't think about that. What if that's true? And Jesus goes on to just debunk this myth. Jesus is essentially saying civil war is no way to advance a kingdom. Like, if Satan is in the business, which they would have understand, of taking new territory, of capturing, and oppressing and abusing more and more and more people to see his influence grow in the world. Jesus is going, what person, what king tries to advance their kingdom by starting a civil war? And you can imagine the crowd going, aye, what are these guys talking about? It's a party back there. If you're not careful, you can miss the brilliance of what Jesus is doing here. Essentially, he's saying, even if I am doing what I'm doing by Satan, it's bringing an end to his kingdom. Therefore, God's kingdom is advancing. Of course, he's not. But even if he is, he exposes the mad logic of what they're saying. Even if it is by Satan that I'm driving out Satan, then God's kingdom is coming. And everybody's brain breaks. Like, wait, what? Verse 25, he goes on, a house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Good news, everybody. Even if it's by Satan I'm doing this, his end has come. But Jesus goes further. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. That's that moment where everyone goes, wait, what? Like we're tracking, it's logical, it's all that sort of stuff. And then now we're in a strong man's house. Who's the strong man? Are you the strong man? Is Satan the strong man? Who's tying who up? Is it rope? Is it handcuffs? What's going on here? Jesus defines in this moment reality for the world. There is a strong one in the world who is controlling and abusing and harming God's children. But a stronger one has come. There is a strong one. Lots of you battle with him in all sorts of parts of your life, your family, your work. But the good news is a stronger one has come. And in the healings and the deliverance, the strong one is finding his house being burgled, being plundered. Remember the beautiful declaration at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, where where Jesus stands in, in front of a crowd and says, the Spirit of Almighty God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. It's like Jesus' commission of himself 
This is what I am here to do. But go home this afternoon and read Luke 4 and look what happens just before he makes that declaration. Just before that declaration happens is the cosmic confrontation of Jesus and Satan in the wilderness. So Jesus is in the wilderness. Satan comes to him, tempts him three times. The final one is him actually saying, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you a shortcut to your destiny. But ultimately, I'll be in charge. And Jesus wins the battle and in that moment ties up the strong man and comes out of that confrontation declaring that the strong man is now tied up and I am about to plunder his house. I'm going to set the oppressed free. I'm going to preach good news to the poor. I'm going to give sight to the blind. This is what's going on. And he is now plundering the strong man's house, setting people free. I wonder this morning, are there things that you need set free from? Things maybe that you've been trying to manage. Things maybe that you've got all sorts of help and systems and strategies in place to keep things kind of under wraps, but under the surface, you know you're still living under the boot of that thing. You need to know that there is one stronger than your addictions. There is one stronger than the pain of your past. There is one stronger than whatever generational momentum your story has in dysfunction. And just like, Jay, come on up, just like the England football team last Tuesday night, in one moment, in one moment, that story can change forever. One of the things I love is that God doesn't, uh, he doesn't rewrite our stories. He, he doesn't like meet us and give us just a new story and we kind of live in kind of trying to block out and forgetting the past. There's this beautiful word called redemption where he redeems our stories and he takes those things that have bound us and those things that have abused us and those things that have defined us and he breathes his life and his hope and his power into those things and uses those very things to bring his life and his kingdom to others and those around us. So here's the question. Where does your story need to change? And what do you need set free from? The truth is there is a strong one. But there's a stronger one and his name is Jesus. Jesus.